Well, it should be quite apparent to all, uh, except perhaps to those who are so blinded by their own particular brand of political ideology, that corruption exists in all governments. Elected politicians, as much as dictators, lie to people. They, they attempt to cover up their own atrocities. They use their position for their own advantage and gain. And we've gotten to the point now where, where sex scandals and murder have just become expected. Currently, we have the whole Epstein drama going on, and yet there's not a whole lot of discussion about it in the mainstream news. And in fact, because of him, a new word has entered into the English lexicon, suicided. Some politician has, has to cover up uh, some sin that they have committed, and lo and behold, the one person who could make it all public has committed suicide or had a car accident or come to some unexpected end. And at the end of the day, you sit back and you look at the world and you think, the politicians don't care, the government Governments don't care. The media doesn't seem to care unless it happens to the, the, uh, the opposing political party. There seems to be no remorse by any world leader for any evil that goes on. I was recently reading a story where the leader of a country had broken the law. In biblical terms, they had sinned. He sinned greatly, and so to cover it up, he had to get rid of the man who could make all of his sin public. So what does he do? Well, like any depraved leader, he pulls an inside job. He's got to have this guy killed and to do so in a way that makes it look like he wasn't involved. And because he had the authority to put people uh, into specific battles, that's what he did. Because his country was at war and he put the man into the fiercest battle hoping that he would die and his plan worked and he got away with it. Or so he thought. You see, sin has a way of being found out. Sin doesn't lie in the shadows long. But what's even crazier is that this man, this leader, was known to be a man after God's own heart. This was the great King David. And yet the whole situation could have come out of one of the playbooks of any of our modern post-enlightenment world leaders. Some things never change. Some things never change, and that's because the heart doesn't change. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so let me read to you very quickly how all this got started with King David from 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. 
there it is in, in black and white. Right? Such a, a great sin boiled down to just five verses. And for us, it all happened so fast. We read it one after the other, and it happens very fast. But can you imagine what it was like for David? David sins with Bathsheba. She, she goes back home. David thinks he's gotten away with it. He's okay. No one found out. He feels like he's in the clear. And then two months later, a message is sent to the palace with a note. King David, I'm pregnant. And now in his kind of panic mode, because he knows he's, he's going to be found out, he, he starts to plot and to plan. His sin is going to be discovered. This is, this is supposed to be God's man. Israel chose Saul because he was tall and strapping and good-looking. They looked on the outside. This is David, though. This is God's chosen man. What's going on here? How can he be a man after God's own heart and this happen? Well, here's how it can happen. I want you to pay attention to the words in this account and and see what echoes in your ears. Verse 2 says that David saw from the roof a woman who was very beautiful. Verse 4, so he took her and lay with her. He saw something that was beautiful and he took. That's Genesis 6 language. The sons of God saw that the women, the daughters of men were beautiful and they took for themselves. But that's also Genesis 3 language, right? She saw that the fruit was good. That word good is also the same word for beautiful in all these uh, situations. She saw that it was good, it was beautiful, and she took. The man after God's own heart is still a son of Adam. And What does this son of Adam do now that he's panicking? Because he's going to be found out? He tries to cover up his sin with even more sin. Always a good idea, right? He comes up with different plans so that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, won't find out and that the people of Israel won't find out. But Uriah the Hittite, this this foreigner, is loyal. He's loyal to Israel and he's loyal to King David. And so David's plans come to naught. So David has to have him suicided. He sends him to the front line of the battle and then he tells the rest of the troops that when he's there, I want you to step back and just let him die. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba. And the very last verse of 2 Samuel 11 says, but the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. That is an understatement if ever there was one. David has committed adultery. He's used deception. He has successfully plotted murder. What sort of man is this? He might fit into the Davos crowd well. He's just another narcissistic leader who's above the law. Or is he? Because you keep reading in 2 Samuel, and in chapter 12, this is what follows. It says, Now Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And so Nathan is telling David this parable. And he says, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So here is appropriate moral outrage, right? Injustice has been committed, and David basically says, nah, not in my kingdom. That doesn't happen here. Death to the man that does that thing. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And in that moment, fear and panic and stress probably overwhelmed him. His sin had been discovered. And not just by Nathan. Nathan was the mouthpiece of Yahweh. The Lord is confronting him. And irony of ironies, David's attempt to cover up his sins so that no one would ever find out not only fails, but was recorded down for all of human history so that we're talking about it right now. You are the man, Nathan says. And he continues on, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little, I would add as much as more. You could have asked for more, David. I would have given it to you. What are you doing? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You see, the consequences of his actions results in the sword being applied to his own home beginning with the son who will be born to Bathsheba. He will die. Sin has consequences. Your sin has consequences. Don't forget that. And what's David's response to all this? Does he, like a good politician, call a press conference and then say, some poor choices were made? And I have put in place procedures so that things like this won't happen again. I will also be on a, going on a short mental health holiday uh, to ensure that I come back ready to put all this behind us and lead us to victory against the Ammonites. That's not what he does. That's not what he does. Verse 13, after all that he is confronted with by Nathan, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The word of God applied by the spirit of God convicts and brings about true repentance. And that's where all of this is leading today. I wanted you to see the horror of David's sin so that you can hear the tears of his repentant heart in Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 is David's repentant prayer regarding this very event. And so I want us to look at some points uh, some of this psalm this morning and, and see what true repentance 
looks like. Because we too are all called to repent, to repent of our sins, to turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus. But true heartfelt repentance can't just say, my bad, Jesus, sorry, and then just keep going. It's more than that. You can't just say that and think, oh, all is good now. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm, 40, uh, sorry, Psalm 51, Psalm 51, and let's look at some of the marks of a repentant heart. Psalm 51. But first, note the occasion for this psalm in the inscription right before verse 1. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so here is David's heart on display, having been confronted by his sin. Here is his repentant heart. And so the first mark of a repentant heart that we see is that it pleads on God's mercy. Look look at verse 1. He starts off by saying, Have mercy on me, O God. Yours might say, be gracious to me. Here's the word to, to show mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so David begins his repentant psalm, not with an appeal to God's justice, not with an appeal to his holiness, but to mercy. The, the, the heart of a repentant individual is one that knows they have committed sin, knows they have broken God's law, knows the just thing for God to do is to bring judgment, but pleads before the throne on the basis of his mercy. They cry out, oh God, I am sorry. Have mercy on me. I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it, but all I can do is plead for mercy, knowing that you are a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Luke, Luke 18, verse 10, Jesus tells this parable of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious scholar, one who is supposed to be an example in the community, and the other a hated and despised tax collector. The Pharisee prays, God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He starts off by thanking God. Sounds good, right? He's thanking God, but his prayer is not a prayer from a broken and repentant heart. Thank you, God, that I am not like these other men over here, like this tax collector. I mean, I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all that I get. I'm thankful that I'm better than them. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. You know, there's no command in the Bible that you must bow your head when you pray. In fact, we read many times throughout Scripture of people, including Jesus himself, lifting up their heads to pray. So why do we do it? Why do we bow our heads? 
partly because of this tax collector. Knowing his sin, he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. So ashamed at what he has done and who he is, all he can do is pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, the repentant heart pleads on the mercy of God. We see it with this tax collector. We see it with King David. It should be the prayer of our heart as well. Have mercy on me, O Lord, the sinner. So David begins this penitent psalm by directly appealing to God's mercy as well as his steadfast love. Those two words uh, translate the Hebrew word chesed, which is a, a word that often refers to God's covenant love, his covenant loyalty, his, his covenant faithfulness. And so they are in covenant relationship with one another. And so he's pleading to him, his covenant God, have mercy on me. Well, secondly, a repentant heart desires to be made clean. David asked the Lord to cleanse him of his sin in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He wants the stain of his sin to, to, be, to be removed, to be washed away, right? Verse, in verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He doesn't revel in his sin. He, he, he sees it for what it is. It is a stain. It has made him unclean. Your sin makes you unclean. He wants to be bathed in the water of God's mercy so that his guilt will be forgiven and his conscience can be cleared. This is what we should desire as well. In 1 John 1, 9, the Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, that is, if we acknowledge that we have sinned, if we repent, if we turn to Christ, if we do what David is doing here in Psalm 51, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The prayer of David's heart was, I want to be cleansed of this sin. Jesus says, repent, turn to me, trust me, and you will be cleansed. Third, David acknowledges that his sin was indeed sinful. It wasn't just a mess up. It wasn't just, sorry, Lord, I screwed up here. He recognizes how sinful it was. And this is evidenced in a couple different ways. First, he says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Per perhaps this has happened to you as well. You sin, you know it was wrong, and then it replays in your mind over and over and over and over again. And it sits in the front of your mind and just weighs on you because of the guilt of what you have done. He hates that. He hates that he has done this thing and he hates that he has sinned. And then again, second in verse four, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you hear that and you might be thinking, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about this, this baby that died because of your actions? Did, did you not hurt them? Did you not do evil to them? Yes, David did. But that which makes sin sin is that it is ultimately against God. 
It is a belittling of God. Every sin is a belittling of God. He recognizes that while he has indeed done evil to those around him, at the core of it was his sin against God. Against you only have I sinned. And so he's recognizing how sinful his actions were. And then next, he recognizes that God will be just in the dispensing of his judgment. Right? The last half of verse 4 says, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is guilty and he knows it. So if, if God sends him to hell, God will be just. If judgment is administered, God will be blameless. Piper notes, quote, this is, this is radical God-centered repentance. This is the way saved people think and feel. God would be just to damn me and that I am still breathing is sheer mercy, and that I am forgiven is sheer blood-bought mercy. David vindicates the righteousness of God, not himself. You see, through all these here, he's recognizing how horrific his sin really is. He continues on, and he acknowledges that he is, as to his very nature, a sinner, Right? Sin is not just something he does, but he is a sinner. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. How many excuse sin by saying, well, this is just the way I am? And we excuse sin. We excuse it that way. David doesn't do that. He acknowledges that the adultery, the, the lying, the murder are all the outworking of his sinful nature. He's not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he is a sinner. And don't miss that that is who you are as well. You sin, I sin, because we are sinners. And fifth, his, his sin is against knowledge. Listen to verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here was a man after God's own heart who knew God's ways and yet still sinned. He knew it was wrong, and yet he still does it. How long have you been a Christian? Two months, two years, 20 years? You have learned God's truths. And the longer you've been a Christian, the deeper it is imprinted on your heart. Therefore, when you sin, you do so against knowledge, which makes it even worse. Throughout these verses, David is acknowledging the sinfulness of his sin. This is part of repentance. Yes, a repentant heart pleads on, on the mercy of God, but it recognizes as well how sinful it actually is. A repentant heart must have knowledge of the sinfulness of their sin. J.C. Ryle once wrote, quote, The eyes of the penitent man are opened. He sees with dismay and confusion the length and breadth of God's holy law and the extent, the enormous extent of his own transgressions. He discovers to his surprise that in thinking himself a good sort of man and a man with a good heart, he has been under a huge delusion 
He finds out that in reality, he is wicked and guilty and corrupt and evil in God's sight. His pride breaks down. His high thoughts melt away. He sees that he is a great sinner. Well, the last mark of a repentant heart, we, we, we plead on the mercy of God. We, we desire to be cleansed from this sin. We acknowledge that this, the sin that we've committed is sinfulness. And the last thing we look at for today is that a repentant heart wants to be restored. To restore to fellowship with God, restored to rejoice again, restored to praise God again. In verse 8, this is what we read. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's interesting because he says the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hebrews 12, 6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Discipline for sin is not hatred. It is loving. David recognizes that. Though his bones must be broken by God, metaphorically, he still desires to rejoice. Again in verse 11, we read, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? He, he wants to be in God's presence. He, he doesn't want to be removed because he knows that to spend one day in God's courts, in God's presence, is better than a thousand elsewhere. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so in the midst of sorrow he has for his sin and in the midst of his, his anger over his sin, he wants to be joyful. Not that all of this is forgotten and he's just moving on with his life and now everything is better. He doesn't. He doesn't say, uh, restore to me the joy of a good and peaceful life. That's not what he says. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It is a delight in God and what he has done for him. I want to delight in your salvation. And in verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, the repentant heart acknowledges sin. It is sorrowful over sin. It confesses sin. It hates the sin. It desires to turn from it and to be cleansed from it. But it's a heart that also desires to turn to God to be in his presence, to rejoice in him, even in the midst of the discipline that may come, to rejoice in the salvation that God has brought. And then with a heart like that, to open up the mouth and to sing, to sing praises. Throughout the New Testament, there is a constant refrain to repent. John the Baptist cries out, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or again, repent and believe in the gospel. Les read earlier from Acts 2.38, where Peter proclaims, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There is only one way to be forgiven of your sins, and that is to repent and to believe in Jesus. In just a minute, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a meal for those who have been united to Christ by faith and have been baptized. It's a memorial meal. 
that while we have sinned, while we have broken God's law, while we stand in David's place, Nathan the prophet does not come to you and say, you are the man. He doesn't. In John 19, Jesus is before Pilate. Charges have been brought against Jesus that he is a great blasphemer, a great sinner. The crowd of Jews want justice and they demand the death penalty. And so, beginning in verse 1 of John 19, we read, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to strike him with their hands. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. He is being treated as a sinner, a horrendous sinner, and yet he was blameless. He's being mocked and hit and has thorns gouged into his head, and yet he was guiltless. King David the king of the Jews, sinned greatly. And yet in 2 Samuel 12, 13, after confessing his sin, Nathan says, Yahweh has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Here, King Jesus, king of the Jews, is innocent. He's innocent of all sin, and yet he must die. And he does so for you. Now listen to these words of Pilate, having, been, or ha- having, having brought Jesus out before the crowd, bloodied, beaten, wearing a purple robe and a crown of thorns. He presents Jesus to the people, and he says, behold the man. God has indicted him instead of you if you believe. The one who knew no sin is told, you are the man, so that you and me might be forgiven. We must be a people who repent of our sin because look at what Christ has done for us. Realize that what we celebrate here in just a minute these things have eternal consequences. As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, let me leave you with these words from David in Psalm 51, verse 17. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so the call to us It's to repent, repent of our sins, and to be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have to admit that sometimes we can't even comprehend what Christ has done for us. How many times, how many days, how many minutes in a day 
Would there have been a Nathan coming to us saying, you are the man, you have sinned? And yet instead, the finger is pointed at Christ. And we get forgiveness. These are amazing things. Amazing things to think about, to believe, realizing eternity hangs in the balance. And so we pray that every single one of us this morning, whether we've been a Christian for a month or for 40 years, that we would have a repentant heart. And for those that don't know you, Lord, turn their hearts. Turn their hearts to repent, to hate their sin. Help us to hate our sin this morning and to cry out, have mercy on me, O God, the sinner. And then to look to Christ on the cross and to know that there we can be cleaned. There our sins can be washed away. What David was crying out for, we have in Christ. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. May our hearts be gripped by these realities. What amazing grace has been shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are going to stand.